1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three of our favourite writers from the magazine to read their piece aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On today's episode, Douglas Murray explains why C.S. Lewis was right about war. Mary Wakefield looks at the founding myth that Russia and Ukraine are fighting over and Nicholas Shulman looks at the curse of Philip Larkin's big problem. First up, Douglas Murray.
0: Well... At least Covid is over. No sooner had Vladimir Putin's tanks rolled into Ukraine than the UK's Covid advisory group, SAGE, disbanded. The same effect was felt in the US, where the outbreak of war in Europe led to the immediate, unlamented disappearance of Dr Anthony Fauci. After two years on primetime, suddenly the good doctor was nowhere to be seen. Covid already seems so very last season. The climate emergency likewise seems to have drifted away. For years, whenever the world was facing no more proximate emergency, every politician from the Scottish Parliament upwards insisted that we were all doomed and heading to hellfire. Such thinking captured most developed governments and terrified a generation of young people with an insistence that we had, at various times, only a decade, a month or a minute to save ourselves. Now, those folks have more than piped down. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has actually made some of them about turn. Now that a real crisis is occurring in the neighborhood, even Germany's Green Party has realized that you can't farm out your ethical energy dilemmas to another country. Germany was all set to be reliant on Russian gas, while pretending that it was as green as green could be. All it achieved was to hobble itself and outsource its energy future to a madman. A similar awakening appears to be occurring here in the UK. Only weeks ago, Boris Johnson could be found blithering on about net zero, being the priority of his conservative government. Now he is starting to recognise that abandoning the most effective forms of energy while relying on the least is not a good policy. It took a war to persuade him of this. You've got to reflect on the reality that there is a crunch on at the moment, Johnson manfully conceded this week. I do not wish to mock, or at least not to mock excessively. Rather, I mention it because it highlights something deeper. As I have commented before, it has seemed to me in recent years that our era has a tendency, even perhaps a desire, to lurch from disaster to disaster. The disaster of the current moment is Putin. Before that, it was Covid. Before that, it was green. I can't remember what it was before that. Racism? Brexit, perhaps? Somewhere in the middle, there were parties... But society has developed an appetite for focusing on one thing at a time, putting all our attention on it, like the eye of Sauron, and then moving on. In the process, it is easy to affix ourselves to cause after cause in search of meaning. It is also possible to fall prey to cynicism, not to mention hopelessness. As it happens, I was thinking about this recently while in Savannah, Georgia, helping to launch a new liberal arts college called Ralston College, which is opening for students later this year. The aim is to give them the sort of education that used to be regarded as a proper education. There will be teaching of the classics and the great works of the Western canon, and an understanding of civilization and the riches it has produced. At these moments, such efforts can, erroneously, seem inadequate. One professor told me that a student of his had recently said that she wished to go to Ukraine to fight. It turned out her parents had experienced Russian tanks before, and she wanted to do something to help. In reality, a student in the humanities, untrained in the arts of war, is little help against an invading horde. And here, a certain hopelessness can creep in. Perhaps it already has for many people. But I was suddenly reminded of a sermon C.S. Lewis gave at the University Church in Oxford in the autumn of 1939. I mention it not because I think we are in a remotely similar position to our situation then, nor am I one of those many people who believe that humanity seems endlessly doomed to replay the 1930s. I mention it only because the content of what Lewis said in Learning in Wartime seems appropriate to this moment. For one of the many points Lewis made is a point I have occasionally tried more inadequately to convey, which is an invitation not to put off what we should be doing simply because there is catastrophe in the world. As Lewis said, human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. Life, in other words, has never been normal and even those periods of history that we imagine to have been so show themselves on closer inspection to have been full of alarms of their own. Plausible reasons have never been lacking for putting off all merely cultural activities until some imminent danger has been averted or some crying injustice put right, said Lewis. Our species... ...distinguishes itself by ignoring those plausible reasons. The insects have chosen their way and have their rewards, says Lewis. But it is not our way. Men are different. They propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities... Conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells. Make jokes on scaffolds. Discuss the last new poem while advancing to the walls of Quebec. And comb their hair at Thermopylae. This is not panache. It is our nature. While Lewis seems to me to be correct, that. Nature, he describes, could in fact be changed. It could be changed if that nature was widely perceived and taught to be wrong. A dominant voice of our era says that everything else must be put off until this season's crying injustice or wrong is addressed, until Inequality is fixed, justice reigns everywhere, or the temperature of the planet is made forever clement. I do not underestimate the danger or misery of what is happening in Ukraine. But the history of the past few years should have shown us, if nothing else has, that this is what human life is like, a lurching, from one disaster to another. The catastrophes are endless and come in succession, but they cannot define our lives any more than they absolutely have to. It is what we choose to do in the moments in between catastrophes that counts.
1: That was Douglas Murray. Next, Mary Wakefield.
2: It seems strange now that any of us ever imagined that Putin might not invade. He thinks of Ukraine as rightfully Russia's, heart, mind and soul. It's there in that essay he wrote last year. Russians and Ukrainians are one people, he said, meaning not that they're brothers, so much that Ukrainians have no right to a separate identity. And I wonder whether, in attempting to take Kiev, he isn't also trying to lay final claim the founding myth that both Russia and Ukraine fight over, and both think of as their own. Kiev is the setting for the epic tale of Kievan Rus, the first great Slavic state founded in the 900s by enterprising Viking Swedes. Putin clearly identifies with its warlord saint, Vladimir the Great. In 2016, he unveiled an enormous statue of that earlier Vlad, a hundred yards from the Kremlin walls. Kiev had a statue too, but the Moscow Vlad is almost four times the size, and his cloak billows ominously around him as if he's on the move. In 988, Vladimir the Great converted his people to Christianity, encouraging them into the Dnieper to be baptised in a very Putinesque way. Come lest you becoming the prince's enemies. For Putin, this mass baptism was the moment that the Russian Orthodox Church was born. St. Vladimir laid the moral foundation on which our lives are still based today, he says. This is very much not how Ukrainians see it. For them, the founding of Kievan Rus is their own story, not Russia's. Russia didn't exist back then, says the former Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko. And anyway, St. Vladimir, quote, made a European choice, unquote, in opting for Christianity. So alongside the grinding ground war, drifts this long-running memory war. Does Putin see his invasion as a crusade? Well, he can spin it as a crusade to his more credulous countrymen, which amounts to the same thing. The main source for the story of the Kievan Rus and the life of St. Vladimir is a text called the Russian Primary Chronicle, or the Tale of Bygone Years, written in about the 11th century by the monks of Kiev's cave monastery, the Pachersk Lavra. I read the tale of bygone years over the weekend, in translation obviously, and if St Vladimir is Putin's moral Mozart, that's revealing. According to the chronicler, under Prince Vladimir, the valleys of Kievan Rus flowed ceaselessly with blood. There's page after page of the Rus pushing enemies into ditches, and an endless piercing with pikes of a tripe called the Pechenegs. One young protégé of St. Vladimir demonstrates his strength by ripping the skin and flesh from a charging bull with one hand. Olga, Vladimir's grandmother, and a saint in her own right, defeats an enemy tribe by setting fire to a flock of birds who then flap up into the rafters of the houses and burn them down. Putin might identify with Vladimir, but it's Vlad's dad, a pagan by the name of Svaitzolov, who I think he takes most after. Vlad's dad was the archetypal hard man poser, he shaved his head, wore spotless whites, and made a manly show of barbecuing his own strips of horseflesh for dinner. The chronicler is dismissive about his demise. The nomads took his head and made a cup out of his skull, overlapping it with gold they drank from it. Now there's a thought for the Azov Brigade. To be fair to Putin, though, there is some continuity between the Russian Orthodox clergy and their ancient counterparts. If I'm reading the chronicle right, it was St. Vladimir's bishops who encouraged him, after a spate of decent saintly behaviour, to give up on naive notions like mercy. The number of bandits increased, and the bishops, calling to his attention the multiplication of robbers, inquired why he, Vladimir, did not punish them. On Sunday last week, forgiveness Sunday, Patriarch Krill of the Russian Orthodox Church, always in lockstep with Putin, gave his blessing to the war in Ukraine. But the tale of bygone years isn't just a bloody battle saga written by onlooker monks. There's another story running through it too. This story begins with the founding of Kiev by St. Andrew, brother of Peter, who travelled up the Dnieper and then paused for a little prophecy on the spot where Kiev was later built. See these hills? So shall the favour of God shine upon them, that on this spot a great city shall arise. But it was in the hill, not on it, that God really went to work. St. Antony of Kiev was a local who travelled to Mount Athos for religious instruction, but then returned to Kiev and set up in a tiny underground cave to fast and pray. The Chronicles have less to say about Antony than they do about Vladimir, because Antony spent his time in prayer, not colourfully slaughting eggs. But throughout his life, and for centuries after his death, other monks followed Antony's example and carved out their own cells in the rock, and their bodies still lie there, eerily preserved in the tunnels under Kiev. I went to visit them in 2005, on a holiday to Ukraine, bravely joining the queue of pilgrims shuffling underground, though the tunnels are only one person wide and there's no possibility of turning and bolting back. I remember the saints' bodies, elegantly dressed, lying in glass coffins, often with one leathery hand exposed, to prove that their virtuous flesh had resisted decay. Theodosius, Alippi of the caves, Ilya Muromets, the Bogatyr, Nestor, the primary chronicler himself. I remember the smell of candles, the lip prints on the glass coffin lids, and how surprised I was, having felt so unbearably claustrophobic, at not wanting to leave. Does Putin really believe in God? For all he wears a cross, it's hard to imagine that his faith is anything more than tactical spiritual nationalism. But he'll know that Sunday, the 20th of March, in just over a week, is the day when the saints of the Pachersk Lavra are especially venerated. And he'll know that although St. Vladimir's surviving bones are kept in Moscow, it's said that St. Andrew's body is still somewhere under Kiev, as yet undiscovered.
1: That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Nicola Shulman.
2: In matters of
3: sex, Philip Larkin was late getting away. On his 23rd birthday, he wrote defeatedly to Kingsley Amis, I really do not think it likely I shall ever get into the same bed as anyone again because it is so much trouble, almost as much trouble as standing for Parliament. His 2014 biographer, James Booth, adds that Larkin was, quote, still effectively a virgin. And Amos was puzzled that his friend failed to follow through his pursuit of sexual satisfaction, end quote. There is no join-the-dots explanation for what Larkin called the, quote, sex fear and autoerotic fantasies, end quote, that beset him all his life. But now in the centenary of his birth, it's time to bring in the anatomical peculiarity that incarnated his trouble with sexual fulfilment, his penis. I've been hearing of Larkin's penis at intervals... For most of my adult life. The first time was 30 years ago, the most recent this week. In all cases, my informants had it from his first biographer, Andrew Motion, who'd been told by Larkin's tailor that the poet's penis was abnormally large, obliging him to alter the cut of his trouser legs. And as a friend of Larkin's, Motion was also able to confirm this rumour from an adjacent stall of a men's urinal. Motion doesn't mention the penis in his excellent and otherwise comprehensive A Writer's Life of 1993, and nor does Booth in his also excellent Life, Art and Love of 2014, although it seems improbable that he didn't know about it, if I do. Is it because penis size is the last taboo? Or was it thought to be a prurient sideshow, a distraction, unsuitable to the findings of literary biography? I propose instead that this piece of information is so acutely relevant to Larkin's life and work that it should be enshrined in Cole's notes, handed out to secondary school children as part of their poetry pack, perhaps a statue in Poets' Corner, because once the sniggering stopped, students would find it a useful resource and in more than one way. Firstly, it brings light into corners of the poetry that are otherwise obscure. And secondly... It challenges the harmful and false belief much promoted in online pornography that a very large penis is what will make a boy popular with the girls. But for a lot of men, this accident of genetics is a life-ruining affliction. And Larkin fell into this category. There was a side to him that always remained shy and maidenly, wanting to be coaxed from his shell, not unlike the, quote, exceptionally nervous and rather feminine, protagonist of his novel, Jill. For such a disposition to be fastened to an enormous penis with its implication of sexual rapacity, its threat of painful or impossible intercourse and its raised likelihood of malfunction is, I submit, to inherit a constant source of that hesitancy, guilt and fear that we find in his poetry and his love life. Indeed, the only lark in Irv to fly conspicuously free of these obstructions and their perennial invigilator, his writer's block, was the lesbian schoolgirl pornography he wrote in Youth under the sobriquet, Brunette Coleman. Trouble at Willow Gables flowed from him in Reams. Once he got rid of the cumbersome penis, all the fun of the erotic fair was his to enjoy. The mark of Larkin's struggle with his anatomy is all over the work. It's implicit in his understanding of sexual relations, which he often imagines from the woman's side as something to be feared and dreaded, and from the man's as an awkward, brutal failure. His 1950 poem, Deceptions, is typical and would be the starting point for my imaginary classroom. It has an epigraph from Henry Mayhew's London Labour and the London Poor, citing a young prostitute who was drugged and raped as a child of 16. The poem inhabits her feelings on waking. Even so distant, I can taste the grief. Bitter and sharp with stalks, he made you gulp. All the unhurried day, your mind lay open like a drawer of knives, quote. And not just her mind you might add. Then the focus of his attention shifts with equal emotional conviction to the disappointment of the rapist, quote, stumbling up the breathless stair to burst into fulfillment's desolate attic, End quote. That sexual contentment didn't come easily for Larkin was more than a function of his missing the 1960s. His abiding sense of masculine grossness, his alertness to failure on the one hand, and damage, on the other, haunts his sexual imagination. Quote, me and my cloak and fangs had ripping times in the dark. The women I clubbed with sex. I broke them up like meringues. End quote. Ripping times are also in prospect in The Wits and Weddings that poetic documentary of an English summer afternoon a scene from a slow and stopping train between Hull and London King's Cross. At each station, wedding guests assemble to wave off newly married couples. And for Larkin, they divide into two classes, the brutish and the fearful. There are fathers with broad belts under their suits, unquote. And then there are girls who panicked by the thought of the wedding night and, quote, gripping their handbags tighter, stared at a religious wounding. We might wonder in passing how Larkin knows the belts are broad, if they are under the suits. But it's the girls that really engage our concern. The girls, dainty and friable in their sherbet-coloured nylons, tense with an alarm that has always seemed excessive, unless you understand the personal associations. This, as my imaginary students will be told, is one of Larkin's more optimistic productions. Here all the drama of sex fear is happening outside the window, while he, safe in his seat, bowls frictionlessly towards the receptive London, spread out in the sun. In a train that gradually transforms as trains can, into a giant phallus. By the sixth verse, it has started, quote, shuffling gouts of steam. A curious word in the context, gouts, usually referring to splashes of liquid. At London, it slithers through the mossy sides of a tunnel to its destination, quote, And as the tightened brakes took hold, there swirled A sense of falling, like an arrow shower sent out of sight, somewhere becoming rain. A sexual consummation here, which even a 16-year-old could not fail to notice. A consummation conveyed through the toothless old metaphors of trains and rain, and somehow made new and poignant and almost sensually tangible. The Wits and Weddings isn't Larkin's only poem of sexual fulfilment, but it is a counterpoint to a body of work more notable for a sense of impasse. The shock of a locked door in Dockery and Son. The, quote, standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. In Obad. The failure of a promised intimacy in Talking in Bed, where the poet can find no words for his companion that are, quote, at once both true and kind, or not untrue and not unkind. End quote. No rain falls in talking in bed, but it tries to. A celestial failure to perform or complete that mirrors the one going on in the bed. Quote. Outside the wind's incomplete unrest builds and disperses clouds about the sky. The last poem on this starter reading list will be one Larkin never published, but where all these phallic tropes come together most explicitly, the masturbation poem, Best Society. The society is his own company. He begins, Viciously, then, I lock my door. The gas fire breathes, the wind outside ushers in the evening rain. Once more, uncontradicting solitude supports me on its giant palm. And like a sea anemone or simple snail, there cautiously unfolds, emerges, what I am. End quote. It's all here, the gathering rain, the accommodatingly giant palm, the door that locks him in, not out, and then the timid, secret organ that unfurled shows features of hermaphroditism, a nature both male and female. But the important word here is uncontradicting, the unavoidable implication being that he experienced more companionable types of sex as a blockage or a rebuke. And there's a dick pun in contradiction of the kind we now know Larkin liked coin in his smartier hours to the enduring dismay of his admirers. Nevertheless, to be clear of contradiction was something Larkin seldom achieved in poetry or in life. Even his will contained self-contradictory clauses, each cancelling the other. Advance and retreat, offer and retract was all one impulse to him. And if this peculiarly Larkinian sensibility had a germ in the size of his penis, is it still too embarrassing to contemplate a 100 years after his birth?
1: That was Nicholas Shulman, and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Do join us again next week.